It's This Week in Chicago History with Anna Devlante, sponsored by UChicagoMedicine.org. Uh, we were talking with Dean about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and that, uh, that garage was actually a front for a mob business, wasn't it? Yeah, 2122 North Clark Street. Hey, Bob. Good morning, by the way. Um, I, you know, I, it's interesting because it was a mob front for the Bugs Moran crew. And, um, I know the oven and pizza grinder right across the street where it is today. Above that were these apartments where the Capone crew allegedly staked out what was happening at the Northside garage to try to figure out how they'd approach it. Interesting, Bob. There's, there's a great WTTW special on the St. Valentine's Day massacre, one of the most infamous and deadly mob hits of all time it's really tries to piece together the moments from that day great report if you have a chance to see it we pulled a little clip from it and they pick up we pick up here where the killers drive in in the exact same cadillacs that chicago police detectives used at the time to try to make their surprise entrance five men exit the cadillac at least two of them are dressed as chicago policemen maybe three They enter into the garage, which has a small office. The Moran gang is in the back. They're around a small table. There's a coffee pot going. They see the policemen and think this is nothing but a routine bust. And it didn't take too long before they had the Moran gangsters lined up against the wall, frisked them, had relieved them of probably numerous revolvers and whatever other weapons they had on them, and then shot them. Um, Two men used shotguns and two used Thompson submachine guns at very close range. After the shooting, the fake policemen come back into play. The plainclothes assassins hand over their Thompson machine guns. They raise up their hands like if they're under arrest. So as they were coming out, the people in the neighborhood would think that this was nothing but a police bust. And that's exactly what they thought. That was quite an ingenious plan, wasn't it? Yeah, you think about it. You know, it's interesting because it it was such a big boost for Capone at the time. Uh, never charged with a crime, of course, but um, that he had just taken out his competition at the knees. However, it also led to the beginning of his downfall, you could say, Bob, because that's when the Fed started moved in to really investigate this, this, you know, public enemy number one gangster in Chicago and eventually brought him down for tax evasion not long after that. This was the week in 2006. We were cheering on Devin Hester, now uh, entering the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But uh, it was uh, it was a great start to a Super Bowl, wasn't it? <laughs> It was an amazing start, a thrilling start, and I pulled the most recent thrilling Super Bowl moment I could find, Bob, for the Bears. Um, Got to go back to 2006 for that. Devin Hester doing the impossible, running back the opening kickoff this week for a touchdown in the Super Bowl. And while Hester had said, you know, he dreamt of this very thing happening before the game, he planned for it even, he said. He believed it was going to happen. <laughs> that wasn't the case for uh, Tony Dungy, who um, the opposing coach for the Indianapolis Colts, Colts of course. He said, very publicly, as we recall, before the Super Bowl, the plans to avoid Devin Hester just weren't going to happen. We were not playing scared. No way, no how. Here he is on the Dan Patrick Show explaining his game plan. We had decided all week that we were not going to kick the ball to Devin Hester. (laughs) (laughs) That night after the meeting, I thought, that's really playing scared. We're not going to do that. Oh, no. And so the next morning, I told the team, or when we were going to the game, I said, I hope we lose the toss. Because if we do, we're going to kick it right down the middle to Hester, and we're going to pound him. And when they know we've taken their best threat, they're going to be finished. And then? 13 seconds later, he was in the end zone. <laughs>
and everybody's looking at me saying, who's that? And I said, I went back and I said, I told you we'd have a storm. And it's how we hang together. <laughs> yeah, well, he got the last laugh anyway. <laughs> he certainly did. That was the most thrilling 13 seconds of that Super Bowl, I would say, Bob, other than maybe the Prince halftime show. That might have been the only mm-hmm. other highlight. <laughs> but there you go. The official NFL football has a uh, history here in Chicago, doesn't it? Did you, did you know this, Bob? I, I guess um, it's interesting to think how far back these roots go, because the Chicago company has appeared in every Super Bowl since it began and, and was even a central part of the NFL before that. Um, the horror Ween Company makes the official NFL footballs. This week in 1940, Papa Bear Hallis actually asked the Chicago-based company to make the official game balls for the league. You know, it is a deal that has lasted all of these years. If you think about it, that's pretty remarkable. Horween leather, tannery, uh, right there on the north branch of the Chicago River since the turn of the century, started making footballs from Pigs bladders. That's how they got the name, the pigskins, of course. But by the 40s and 50s, they were making them with cowhide and synthetic rubber interiors. And now every year there's this system where Horween, as soon as the two names, uh, the two team names are announced for the Super Bowl, they'll send out 100 footballs to each team to start practicing with. It's a pretty cool um, relationship uh, that has lasted so many years. And to this day, Horween employs several hundred people in Chicago and uh, ships its products all over the world as one of the most respected tanneries and leather makers in the world. From Elston Avenue. Anna Devonkers. <laughs> this week in Chicago history. More to come after this break. B.B. King was live from the Cook County Jail. Anna? 1971, Bob, uh, B.B. King's recently released album, Live at the Cook County Jail. It was climbing the charts, number 15 on the Billboard 100 this week, number one on the R&B charts. And, you know, he had just performed the, one of the most memorable concerts of his life. Wasn't supposed to initially be about recording an album. Uh, Live from Cook County Jail began when the warden actually approached B.B. King and said, hey, would you do a concert? He saw him, he saw him perform uh, on Rush Street, and he said, look, look, would you do a concert? I want to kind of come my inmate population. I think this would help. And Johnny Cash had just recorded um, not too long before an album at Folsom Prison. So King's agent said, you know, let's bring in some recording equipment and see if we can turn an album out of this. Well, what began as a promotional opportunity turned into something, you know, so much deeper. B.B. King talked about uh, how his, in his interactions with the inmates and how they, he really felt for them and the conditions in the jail. And reporters started interviewing inmates, learning about some of the unfair practices and faults in the system at the time. One network reporter uh, who visited did a story about how inmates were being held for over a year awaiting trial. Just hadn't, you know, weren't guilty yet, just were waiting for trial in, in in the Cook County Jail. So lots of scrutiny of the conditions. And B.B. Um, King not only recorded the hit album and, and you know, entertained the crowds, but also did that. This is a double this week in Chicago anniversary, history anniversary, Bob, because it also marks the week 12 years ago when B.B. King convinced a reluctant President Obama to do a duet with him. Here he is. Uh, we'll all remember this particular moment. Fun. Come on. I 
don't think that one made the charts, but that was fun to hear, wasn't it? <laughs> he was in the. Remember, he was off to the side. He's like, no, 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 I'm not going to sing. I'm not going to be that guy. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to go out there and sing again. And he's like, no, 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 you come on out. So it was kind of fun, fun to think about that. Uh, the uh, Chicago Auto Show, I can't believe this, has been around since 1901. Really? Yeah, think about that. 1901, it's the 116th this year, Bob, because they, they stopped it for a few years during the World War II years. But um, the original promoter for the show had been doing bicycle shows across the country. He was a Chicagoan named Sam Miles, and he held the first one at the Chicago Coliseum on South Wabash. There was an indoor track, and you know you could test drive all 10, all 10 of the vehicles exhibited. There were only 10 cars then, five electric-powered, p- uh, three steam-powered, two with gasoline engines. And uh, back then, this newfangled mode of transportation was known as the horseless carriage by a lot of people. So people were checking out the horseless carriages. A 1901 Ransom Olds took center stage because it uh, you could take it for a spin and it was available for purchase for $650. Still expensive, of course, in 1901 dollars, but obtainable for some of the middle class. So pretty cool stuff. Chicago Auto Show just took off from there over the years often regarded as the national auto show. Um, But Sam Miles, the original guy, the bicycle guy, he stuck with it for three decades as GM of the Chicago auto show before retiring in 1931. I wonder how many people remember the old Chicago Coliseum on Wabash. They they used to have concerts there through the 70s. I remember seeing James Taylor and Carol King together there. And that place is, of course, long, long gone now. Uh, yeah. Let's let's talk about this uh, commercial that uh, became, well, I don't know if you say famous or infamous this week in 1991. Memorable for all the wrong reasons, Bob. Do you remember the Scotty Pippen ad in 1991 for Mr. Submarine? Do you remember this one? I, 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 no, I, I don't really. I, I'm, I'm trying to think. Okay, uh, Dave, play, I think I Dave do. remembers it. I, yes, I do. <laughs> Dave, I'm sure you'll have so many interesting backstories about this particular one. But I just remember the line for a while when people would roll up and say, hey, ladies, let's have a party. They were referencing. Oh, the- oh yeah. <laughs> remember that? <laughs> now, now it's coming back to me. <laughs> <laughs> the cheesy line from the Mr. Submarine ad uh, starring none other than Scotty Pippen, who joked about the six footer. He couldn't beat the six foot submarine. Just super awkward delivery, but really super awkward script, too. Here we are. Let's play some of that. See if you recall this. One. Chicago's original submarine, Mr. Submarine. This is one six foot. I can't handle one on one. Ladies, let's have a party. Choose from Mr. <laughs> Submarine's great lineup of your favorite subs. Mr. Submarine's king size sub, a regular sub piled high with your favorite meats and cheeses. For the best tasting meal around, Mr. Submarine is the real Chicago's stuff. Original submarine, Mr. Submarine. I'll tell you something, guys. If you don't have a date for Valentine's Day, uh-huh. uh, let's have a party. That line Try always that works. Line. Yeah. <laughs> Now they they originally didn't didn't want uh, Scotty Pippen for this spot, did no. they? No, second choice actually. They wanted Michael Jordan, uh, but his McDonald's contract would not allow him to participate, so he had to turn it down. And they actually shot it, Bob, with the Lovables. You hear them there, two Lovables, uh, members of Lovables uh, group. Um, they uh, were there too. They shot it at the Bulls 
Deerfield practice facility. And Jordan was within earshot reportedly during all of this. He might have been saying, thank God I did not accept that <laughs> ad. Thank God my agent stepped in and <laughs> the McDonald's contract, whatever it was. But he was saved from uh, that piece of history. Pretty <laughs> Maybe he would have delivered the line <laughs> in a different way. But uh, you're right. Uh, it, it's it's the fault of the copywriter, I think. Oh, ladies, let's have a party. <laughs> I don't know. Did that work in 91? I'm well, not sure. We're still talking about it, though, over 30 years later. Yeah, Mr. Submarine getting their money's worth. Uh, Thanks, Anna. We'll talk to you next Wednesday.